Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, we'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We try to preach the scriptures uh, passages as units. Sometimes in the book of Acts, that creates a challenge because it gives us 40 verses to go through at one time. When you uh, today we're going to see what happened in Antioch of Pisidia, and uh, it actually goes all the way from verse uh, 13 all the way down uh, to uh, the end of the chapter. So, uh, but we'll do that in a second. I want to talk tell you about George Whitfield. He was born in 1714 and died in 1770, and he was America's first celebrity. You know him that he was the great evangelist that preached uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. But about 80% of all American colonists heard him preach at least once. So think about that. There you are in the mid-1700s, and four out of five people living in what would become America, the colonies, heard him preach. Uh, other than royalty, he was perhaps the only living person whose name would have been recognized by any colonial American. So the Great Awakening was sparked, sparked largely by his preaching tour of 1739 and 1740. He was only 25 years old, but he took America by storm. His farewell sermon on Boston Common drew 23,000 people. That was more than Boston's population at the time. It was probably the largest crowd that had ever gathered in America. He preached at both Harvard and New Haven College. Now, does anybody here know what New Haven College was later called? Yale. So he preached at both Harvard and Yale. At Harvard, it was reported after he preached there that the college is entirely changed. The students are full of God. Well, the students there now are full of something, but it probably isn't God. Yet Harvard's leading professors later wrote a pamphlet denouncing Whitfield. So even in the 1700s, the liberal-type professors that didn't believe in God, and uh, uh, you know, they probably claimed more at that point to be deists or Unitarians or something, so they denounced Whitfield later on. But brutal mobs would sometime attack not only Whitfield, but also his followers. Sometimes they'd maim people and strip women naked. So imagine that. You go to hear the great evangelist and somebody's grabbing at your clothes and stuff. Whitfield received three letters with death threats and once he was stoned until nearly dead. So George Whitfield in total traveled seven times to America, more than a dozen times to Scotland and to Ireland, Bermuda, and Holland. In his lifetime, he preached at least 18,000 times. So because he was an evangelist, you know, he'd preach at some church on Sunday in open fields uh, Sunday afternoon and night and many times during the week as well. Uh, he, addre he addressed perhaps 10 million hearers live. Um, he published his first sermon in London in 1737. It was the nature and necessity of our regeneration or new birth in Christ Jesus. The sermon's theme was not new, but lying behind it was an electrifying delivery. When he got to America, he was a sensation. His impassioned preaching on the need to be born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, 
When he preached on the new birth in 1739, it helped spark what historians have called the Great Awakening. So he traveled from New Hampshire down to Georgia, where he founded America's first charity. It was an orphanage, and so with money collected, he founded an orphanage. Um, in fact, uh, one of my favorite quotes by George Whitfield is, I hope to grow rich in heaven by taking care of orphans on earth. <laughs> and um, so his preaching united uh, colonies as no one had before. Um, thousands discovered, as one Connecticut farmer put it, that my righteousness would not save me. And uh, you've got an account of a of uh, somebody that was converted on the back of your notes there. But in George Whitfield's day, most preaching emphasized becoming a better person um, through trying to do the things the Bible commanded. And there is a place for a Christian reading their Bible uh, to um, hear what the Word says and do what the Word says and experience the blessed life the Bible says will happen when you live by God's commands rather than living by uh, what the world says is okay and that sort of thing. So there is a place for that. But sometimes that's all a preacher does. And as, as you moralize like that, uh, you know, good people try to do better, but they're still lost in their sins. And if they do have some success at being good people, they take pride in their own goodness rather than understanding that they are inherently a sinful wretch in need of God's amazing grace uh, to save and sustain. Whitfield understood that non-Christians were dead in their sins and incapable of doing what the Bible said until they were born again. So he preached that all people were lost sinners in need of salvation. Now there's one other thing we should add in, and it particularly came into play when Whitfield was preaching back in England. So back in England, there was still very much a class system. Uh, when you watch something like Downton Abbey, you'll see that there were royalty, and then there were lords and ladies, and dukes and duchesses and earls and earlettes or whatever, earlene, I don't know what, what goes with earl. Uh, but anyway, um, and th so they definitely had all the way down to the very poorest of the poor. And the way the Anglican church at the time reinforced things, uh, you know, uh, everybody in a parish technically belonged to the Anglican parish, uh, but um, you know, many of the people that worked in coal mines and others just had really no exposure to the gospel. And here's Whitfield and John Wesley preaching to them outside the coal mines. And, uh, you know, tears would run down the miners' face, and all of a sudden the black sooty faces would be, become white with the tears, you know, that were coming down their faces and things. But uh, many of the nobility uh, did not believe that they were sinners uh, like the commonest of people. In fact, one lady, uh, when, uh, let, me, let me give you a name that you've never heard of, maybe. If you've heard of this, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll buy you dinner one night. Has anybody heard of Selena, the Countess of Huntington? Oh, she was greatly responsible for good things that Christ did uh, during uh, those, those days and things. She oftentimes would gather her noble women friends for a tea and have somebody like Whitfield speak. Well, one of these occasions, I don't know if it was her or another Christian lady doing this, but um, uh, Whitfield was preaching about the, uh, us as sinners and the need to turn to Christ. And a noble woman, when she heard George Whitfield preach, said something like this. How monstrous to be told, one has a heart as sinful as the common wretches, so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. 
<laughs> and of course, Whitfield was saying, hey, lady, you know, there'll be plenty of women and men of high rank and good breeding in hell because they were relying on that rank, good breeding, etc. And that's some of what the scripture has in mind when it says in John 1, 12 uh, and 13, John 1, 12 says uh, um, that as many as received him to those who believe in the name, he gave them the right to become a child of God. Those that are born not of uh, works, it says not of the flesh, not of works, but you know, uh, there's three things it says there, but it's that kind of thing, relying on your birth status from good parents or whatever, the works you do, etc. cetera, uh, even you thinking you're doing God a favor by saying I accept you, but wanting to keep on living as the Lord of your own life. It says that uh, these people are born of God, those that are truly born again there. So the sin nature is so powerful that we even find Paul after being born again saying, I am, not I was, the chief of sinners, and he also said, in my flesh dwells no good things. Uh, now, it won't surprise you that I've done this, but many times I'll be sitting in my office doing some kind of pastoral counseling. And, um, and I'm sitting there talking to somebody who needs to repent of something. And um, they're sorry they got caught, but they're not sorry they've offended a holy God. You know, they're sorry there's consequences because of their sinful choices, but not that they sinned before a holy God. And invariably, they'll say somewhere in that conversation, uh, but, but I'm basically a good person. And I love to look at a man or a woman in the eye when they say something like that and say, no, you're not. And I'm not either. It's not about my goodness before or after salvation. It's about what Christ has done for sinners and what he's doing in saints, right? Um, so I've noticed a paradox over the years, and I think you've probably noticed it too. The godliest people that I've ever met were the ones most aware of their own sinfulness. Um, many times, somebody that's trusting in their own goodness tells me what a good person they are. They're comparing themselves to others, but a godly person is done comparing themselves with others. They say, I've seen, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, the Lord high and lifted up the bright light of the truth of his word is shining down on me. And uh, now I see all the spots and imperfections in my sinful life in a way that only happens when what the scrutiny is coming from is God's holiness versus me saying I'm a little bit better than that guy over there or that girl over there or whoever, you know, and those things. So Whitfield was very uh, straight on those things. He knew that the Bible... You know, it's interesting how uh, you'll watch so many TV shows or movies and they'll invariably come to a line and talk about how all, uh, you know, people are born good, you know, but they stray a little bit or this or that or the other. But there's this inherent goodness inside them. And the scripture's message is, no, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Uh, it doesn't say trust your heart. It says your heart will deceive you. It will make you think your feelings are right when it calls they call you to do sinful things. So we're supposed to be suspicious of uh being motivated by feelings rather than uh, the truth of God's word. So the Bible's answer is much more comprehensive because it says there is a yearning in each of us to do good, to do the right thing. That's because we're created in God's image and likeness. He's put that stirring inside of us. I think that's what Ecclesiastes 3 means when it says he has set eternity in our hearts. So we're, we're not good people because of our sin, but we are striving to go toward goodness because of this that God's put inside of us. 
but that's deeply flawed because of the sin nature we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the sinful choices we've made. So we come into this world because of our sin nature and our thoughts are darkened, our bodies are drawn towards sin, and we are dead in our soul. And then when we finally understand the light of the gospel comes to us, uh, we finally understand, oh man, the only way I can be saved is to flee to Christ. So we flee to him and our soul becomes alive. We're born again. And because that's happened, now our brain starts to think with the Spirit's help about things in the Word of God. And that starts to influence the actions of our body. And we're going to um, you know, be continually developing more and more Christ-likeness and serving him as we go along. Uh, so I love how clear Whitfield uh, was on all those things, and it's as clear as the scripture are, is that uh, it takes faith in Christ alone to save. Uh, you know, I've, I've written this here. I should go ahead and read it. I've got good news. There's a way to have your sins forgiven and be made right with God, but it doesn't come from having faith in yourself or faith in faith. It comes from having faith in Jesus Christ alone. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so now let's read this passage. Um, Verse uh, 14. But when they departed from Perga, minus John Mark, who leaves in verse 13, goes back to Jerusalem. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So not the Antioch they started from. This is Antioch in Europe. And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt, dealt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, this for us, their children, that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16 it is, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life believed. You might want to put a star by that. Tremendous verse. As many has been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So a long passage there, but what I love about passages like this is um, it gives us the outline that Paul used when he preached. And it looks a lot like what Peter preached, right? He preached to Jewish audiences that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. He was the Messiah. And he talked about why they needed a Savior, the fact that Jesus had died for their sins. And they always say he is risen from the dead. And because he has, there's hope for the future, which is really cool. Now, before we uh, go on down uh, through the sections here, let's make sure we understand uh, what is a synagogue? What was a synagogue? It was, we could call it a Jewish church. Uh, it was a place where the Jews assembled to uh, meet together and hear the word of God and do the prayers and celebrate the, as best as they could the feasts without being able to go to Jerusalem. And uh, so they uh, were uh, a lot like our churches. They would gather there. Now, we hear of God-fearers and proselytes uh, in this uh, passage also. Uh, can anybody remember what a God-fearer was, one who feared God uh, from a Gentile background that was also in these synagogues? Can anybody remember what they were? We could probably piece it together, uh, but I'll help you out. Um, so, as Jews interacted with their neighbors throughout the Roman Empire... They loved hearing about Yahweh. They loved hearing about the Ten Commandments and truth to live by in a world of relativism with all kinds of Greek and Roman gods. These Gentiles had fallen in love with Yahweh. So they had come to the synagogue and the Jews uh, that were having these synagogues uh, wanted to incorporate them, but they had a dilemma. They knew that 
these fellows, unless they became, uh, got circumcised and became Jews and adopted all of the Jewish customs, they could not uh, incorporate them into the life of the synagogue without, in their eyes, uh, you know, sinning against God, sinning against Yahweh. And so, kind of like uh, in some segregated eras of the nation's history, there was a balcony with uh, the servant sitting up top and the owner sitting on the floor or whatever and stuff like that. Um, they had had a way for the, uh, for the God-fearers to come and sit in a separate place, hear the word of God without converting to Judaism. Um, and so, uh, and, and they kept coming. They kept coming because they had fallen in love with Yahweh, but they didn't want to become cultural Jews and get circumcised as adult men and stuff like that, you know. But they had already pretty much uh, started to believe that there was one true God and Yahweh was his Old Testament name, his Hebrew name anyway. Uh, and so proselytes were those who had taken the step um, to, even though they were from a Gentile background, to renounce that background and uh, get circumcised and switch over to the dietary code of Israel that's related in the page of the Old Testament. So you had these all together in these synagogues. And as Paul and others went around preaching, they would start in a synagogue. Uh, and uh, many times the most interested hearers about Jesus were these others, these God-fearers, as opposed to the uh, Jewish folks meeting in that town. So it's very interesting. So verses 14 through 16, Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue, and we, from now on, anytime it mentions Paul and Barnabas, Paul is mentioned first. So he's clearly taking the lead on this trip as they go. And it says they arrived at Antioch in Pisidia. Today this is in Turkey. Now, it was 100 miles north of uh, Perga on the Roman road, 3,600 feet up in the mountains on the border of Fergia and Pisidia. So this is their first of several stops in what we call Galatia. So later, Paul writes to the Galatian churches, and this would have been among those up that away. Since they valued their Jewish heritage, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and when asked, they were, they were ready to preach. And I'm glad he did, because again, we get our first look at Paul's preaching from this. So what did Paul preach? Verses 17 through 41, Paul preaches salvation by faith in Christ alone. I, and and uh, I love how there's so much similarity between the preaching of Paul and the other sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, not only um, is it a lot like Peter's, this chapter's message is a whole lot like one Paul had heard uh, from a deacon once upon a time. Um, you remember what I'm talking about from Acts 7 and 8? Who was the deacon that was preaching and Paul uh, was holding the coats of those who later stoned this man to death? Stephen, Stephen right. It's amazing when you walk down through this sermon, you hear a lot of what um, uh, Stephen had said that day. Paul's sermon could be summarized like this. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises in the Bible as his resurrection confirmed. So there's your fill in the blank. So the sermon could be divided into three parts. Verses 16 through 25 summarize Israel's history from the Exodus to John the Baptist. And again, much of what he follows looks like Stephen's sermon back in uh, Acts 7. He began with common ground. We are the chosen people, that's verse 17. The land is our inheritance, verse 19. So we're the chosen people who were given the land. 
he talks about 450 years. There was 400 years of captivity, 40 years of wandering, 10 years to allotment. And he reminds them of Old Testament promises of the Messiah, like the one uh, given to David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. He presents Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises. Then he refers to John the Baptist. So in a way, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and the forerunner of the Messiah. Um, everything known about John the Baptist was good, but he pointed to Christ. So every pious Jew knew that the Messiah would come from David's family and that a prophet would announce his coming beforehand. And John the Baptist was that prophet. So they would have recognized that if it's the Messiah, he's going to be of the seed of David. And if it's the Messiah, some kind of forerunner is going to announce him. The prophet Isaiah had said so, right? And that's where John the Baptist came in. So verses 26 to 37 emphasize that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So he is starting with truth. They all would have knowledge that God had a special plan and purpose for the Jewish people. It involved the coming Messiah. And then he's going to talk specifically about how Jesus is that promised Messiah. So Paul makes it personal here. He switches from saying they to saying you. I don't know if, uh, I don't know, uh, if you saw that when he was, um, you know, uh, as we were reading through, but he switches from saying in past and they to now and you. And that's what good preaching does, right? Uh, everybody on earth is a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Right? He switches it to much more personal for them. And so this promise is for us and the whole world. Verse 26, see what he says there? He says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So notice he's recognizing everybody there. Those of you who are Jews already, those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So guess what? We've got barriers in this place. We got Jews and we got Gentiles. And I'm here to tell you this message is for everybody here. So he's bringing, you know, this is part of Paul and his passion to bring people together in Christ that had been separated by cultural barriers, and now they're going to come together in Christ. Um, he basically, he's talking to these people that are living a little bit of ways away from Jerusalem, may or may not have been down there for one of the feasts when Jesus was killed or the day of Pentecost when all that happened. They probably heard some things, but he's telling them the rest of the story that their generation of leaders in Jerusalem had rejected Jesus and had him killed, but that this too fulfilled prophecies. And of course, the big one is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He had risen from the dead. And I like how now Psalm 16 was written by David. And in Psalm 16, David had said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Sometimes when David's writing in the Psalms, he makes a point that relates to God's plan and purpose and protection of him as the King of Israel. So he's the one that writes that you're not gonna allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Paul takes that and what does he do? Because uh, there's David, and then there's the son of David, the Messiah. So remember that time where um, Jesus asked the Pharisees and scribes, he says, uh, uh, what, what does the scripture say that um, he's referring to Psalm 110, the most quoted passage of the New Testament, where the Messiah is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, but in there he says, now, now, what are the Psalms? Who do they say that, uh, that uh, um, 
the Messiah is. Whose son is he? Right? And they said, well, that's easy. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to be related uh, by seed to David. And uh, he says, now, wait a second. Uh, a seed comes after the father. So um, if he's going to be a son of David, why does David call him Lord? Right? So he's making them think that in that passage, the way David says it, David's got to be referring not to himself, but to a timeless Lord. And it makes us think about what we just saw in Revelation Sunday as we close up Revelation, that Jesus is the root and the offspring, the root and the fruit of David. A root comes before the tree, a branch comes from the tree, right? And so, uh, you know, Jesus had used this. So, so now Paul is arguing like that with them. So he says, David wrote Psalm 16. And some of your scholars will tell you when he says the Holy One won't undergo corruption and decay, his body won't, that David probably was talking about himself as the king somehow. What's the problem with that? David died. We got a, we got a burial chamber for him, right? So he's obviously talking about the Messiah. So a proof of the Messiah is not just that he would die, but that he'd rise from the dead. And of course, there's other Old Testament scriptures. You know how much I love Isaiah 53. If you go back to the end of Isaiah 52 and all the way through chapter 53 of Isaiah, about 20 different times in about 20 different verses, he talks about Jesus dying for our sins. But in one of those verses, he also says he will prolong his days. My righteous servant will justify many. He will prolong his days. He'll get to see what he's done, right? So Jesus dies and he rises from the dead. So he's uh, doing all this here to get him to that right place. So the Jews considered Psalm 16 to be a messianic psalm, and it was clear that this promise did not apply to David, who was dead, buried and decayed. It applied to Christ the Messiah. So it's good preaching. He's taking the scriptures that they own and embrace, and he's saying there had to be a Messiah you're not going to find a better candidate for that Messiah than Jesus. Unfortunately, we killed him, but he didn't stay dead. So verses 38 to 41 features Paul's appeal for them to repent and believe in Jesus. And so he says, verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So he's calling for a decision. He's calling for them to believe. He's calling them to commit their lives to Christ. Now, in these verses, there's two blessings that faith in Christ brings that the law could never bring. So what's, what's amazing about this passage, you guys, is every generation these words have been truer of the Jews that followed than this Jewish first Jewish audience he's talking to here. What I'm about to tell you, these two blessings, um, if anything, modern Judaism is so committed to the law that they have no place for a real personal relationship with God. They're trying to, by works, be justified and um, completely ignoring verses like Genesis 15, 6 that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? And... Um, and they have added in the words of the rabbis and also taken the words of the rabbis as equal with law. Uh, one of the things that's really hard about witnessing to many law-based, current, very serious Jews that are wonderful people and we wanna see them come to know Jesus as the Messiah is, 
they believe it's not just the Old Testament that's from God. They believe that there is an oral law that goes all the way back uh, and the rabbis codified it. So when we say, oh, you're Jewish, you should go to Isaiah 53 and look at it says, they will also go to the words of the rabbis that have explained Isaiah 53 away. A few years back, you might have seen the movie. You might have been excited because there was a movie about Noah and his ark. I think Russell Crowe was in it, right? And if you went and saw that movie, you're like, oh, there's all kinds of things in there that aren't the way it says it in Genesis 6. The actor was one was from a, I mean, the, the director of the movie was actually from this Jewish background that I'm talking about. And if you read what the rabbis wrote about the Noah's Ark incident, what, what the, the movie does share it that way. But it's not the way the Bible does it, right? And so, if anything, every new generation of Jews has added in with these words of the rabbis and what Paul shares here about the law is not going to get it for you. It's not going to make you justified before God. And that's why, you know, I mean, there's another whole way to look at it that's more personal to us, and that is to make sure that we have a biblically defined faith that does what we see God calling us to do in the Bible without adding in all of our extra man-made Baptisty traditions to go along with the things that are there, right? So we are always reforming according to the Word of God. In fact, when Martin Luther and the Reformation happened, one of their phrases was, Semper Reformanda. And the full quote was, in English, the church reforming, always reforming according to the Word of God. I got so excited about that, I said, that's going to be my quest for my own life and churches I pastor and any denominations I'm part of, it happens to be the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, but for anything I'm a part of, to always be reforming according to what's in the Word of God and not make the traditions of men equal with the Word of God when they're not the Word of God, right? So two blessings faith in Christ brings the law could never bring. And you can almost feel Paul's passion as he shares. The first one's forgiveness of sins there in verse 38. He says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. He says, let me be very clear what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about head knowledge. I'm talking about you've got a sin problem. Nothing's been able to deal with it. Christ has dealt with it. He, he didn't just die. He died for your sins. You did the crime. He did the time. <laughs> you know? So he's making very clear about that. And then the second thing is justification by faith. By him, everyone who believes is justified justified by faith, justified by belief from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So they're trying to get a hundred on the report card, you know, the law of Moses, trying to get everything right. And they couldn't get out of the, you know, maybe, you know, some of them had A's, others had B's, others had C's. Nobody was going to be justified because it took perfection and none of them met it. Christ met the perfection and faith in him equals justification. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Paul, I mean, uh, David, in Psalm 32, which we talked about a couple weeks ago in church, David in Psalm 32, his great prayer of confession said it so well, um, how blessed is the man whose sins are covered, you know, who are taken care of. And how does that happen? It happens by faith. We can never earn or justify it. So this is, by the way, the first mention, this might be of uh, something you want to make note of. It's the first mention of the word justified in the book of Acts. 
So Paul's taking this good theology that all the apostles were teaching and would later write about in all their letters, and he's preaching in the sermon for the first time. The Greek word for justified is dikaieo and means made righteous. And here it's in the aorist passive infinitive. So true belief is completed in the past with ongoing consequences. S.B. Grant was a uh, man I met when I first uh, got into Waynesboro as a youth pastor. The pastor took me to see him, and he was dying. Uh, and uh, he did die that same week. Um, but uh, I was also, as a young uh, youth pastor, trying to make a video history of the church. Uh, so I wanted to ask him some questions, and he was up for it, and I put him on video. And I said, uh, Mr. Grant... <laughs> I hear that uh, you have blessed a lot of people through your faith in Christ over the years at the Wayne Hills Baptist Church. And he looked indignantly at me and said, I did, I do, and I still do. <laughs> he did believe, he does believe, he's gonna believe, right? Past, present, future. Uh, and that's what happens when a sinner turns to Christ and believes. You know, there's a, there's a forever presentness about their belief, a present foreverness about their repentance. You know, uh, a person who's truly repented has put a yield sign on their heart to God and said, for the rest of my life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you get three votes and I get one. And if something's in your word, I'll yield to it. I'll even do that in my marriage. Elizabeth and I get two votes, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit, y'all get three. And uh, one true God expressed in three persons. Uh, you know, uh, if something's in the scripture, we don't want to do it, we're going to do it because you win three, two. You know, that's the spirit of uh, yieldness and repentance. Let me tell you guys something that isn't emphasized often in churches. We know that to become a born-again Christian, you have to repent and believe, Right? And you do. That's front end. That's how you become a believer. Almost all of the letters, we're talking about Romans all the way to Revelation 3, almost all of the letters are written to those who had believed, right? And do you know the word repent almost never occurs in those letters? It's not that Christians don't need to repent. It's just that we have once and for all. So repentance is assumed as on the front end that when I first came to Christ, I'm yielding to his Lord. That's why it says if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that confession that is open-handed repentance forever afterwards with the Lord, I'm yielding to him forevermore and I'm believing in him, uh, you'll be saved. Um, and so when Hebrews talks about it, it doesn't use the word repent, it uses the word repentance. And what does it say? Not laying again the foundation of repentance from the... So in other words, he's assuming you did that and you're acting on it the rest of your life, right? And you do get to Revelation 2 and 3 and all of a sudden the word comes into each of the seven churches, uh, right? But that's the corporate expression of the faith. Those are letters to the churches, not the individual Christians. But writing all those things in the letters to individual Christians and to churches he concentrates on because you've repented and believed, this is what you, this is your identity in Christ, and then here's the things that Christians do that you're, I'm calling you to do. Anyway, that was free, uh, free for the price of admission. Um, so this becomes one of the greatest teachings of Paul in his letter, justification by faith. 
Romans 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. One of my favorites is Romans 4, 5. It says, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. And then Galatians 2.16, we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Okay, so now that helps us understand Paul's sarcastic comment in verse 46. We're back in Acts 13. Look at verse 46. It says... Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So remember, Paul is talking to three groups of people before him. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to the God-fearers who want to know Yahweh and follow him, but are suspicious of becoming cultural Jews because they know that will mean there's some, uh, it'll change their diet, it'll change other things too. So they're trying to wrestle with, if I follow Yahweh, does that mean I've got to do all of the civil law of Israel, even though we don't live in Jerusalem or Israel? Uh, and also, I, you know, all those things. None of them would have been questioning whether they need to obey moral instruction from the Old Testament. That's one of the things that was attractively drawing them to the faith. So they knew believers don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't lie, that that was part of the package and that sort of thing. They were gravitating toward that truth. So, so there's the Jews, there's these God-fears that were, you know, they, they were being drawn toward the love of, uh, and the truth of Yahweh, but didn't, and then there was proselytes that had said, Okay, we'll be cultural Jews, but they got this message of works before them all the time. And now these guys are coming and Paul is preaching justification by faith. They're hearing this message of grace. And um, remember how the book of Galatians goes when Paul does write the Galatians? He actually calls them out because one of the things that they're struggling with uh, there is, um, you know, the Judaizers... Those Jews that say, we don't mind you talking about Jesus some, we like him too, but if you don't become a cultural Jew, then, so they were still convincing people to get in with all the, that cultural Jew stuff too. And um, Paul says, if you listen to them, then you're thinking you're gonna be saved by those works of the law, the, the, the civil part of the law, instead of faith in Christ, and that really will not help you. He said, in other words, uh, you have, you know, I, I taught you, I worked with you in vain if you think justification by works is going to save you any more than when I told you it didn't back then. You know, so it's, it's really interesting how all this ties together. So Paul urges them not to miss out. Uh, he says um, in, there in verses 40 and 41, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken to the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despise, marvel, and perish. For I work a work in your day, a work which you will and by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Okay, so that's kind of looking at Habakkuk there, one five. Don't let it apply to you, he says. Okay, so he preaches the message, and the aftermath of Paul's sermon is described in the last uh, verses of the chapter 42 to 51. It says in the first couple of verses there, many Jews and proselytes followed. And what was Paul con uh, getting them to, uh, he was persuading them to continue in the grace of God. 
Um, so he persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, those that, that understood what he was talking about. So I wrote in your notes here, belief is not merely intellectual assent, that's the head, but radical trust, that's the heart, and will or commitment. You're writing in the word commitment of the life to the Lord. Head, heart, and will to the Lord. Uh, done once, it never stops being present in the life of a true believer. So the questions we ask at baptism a new believer, the same questions uh, we have for a person facing death. Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? And are you committed to his will prevailing in your life? That's repentance and faith. And without those things, we're going to struggle to have assurance of salvation. We have to keep on trusting in Christ. And uh, he's our focus. He's the only reason we get to go to heaven instead of hell. And that uh, our desire is to follow him. Um, the whole town was there the next week, and the new Christian's faith was contagious. The Gentile converts invited their na Gentile neighbors, and the Jewish leaders, ironically, were not happy to see them there because they understood their pride could not coexist with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They couldn't keep up their pecking order of this is how to be the best kind of religious person uh, if indeed salvation was for all on the basis of grace and serving God wasn't to be higher up in the pecking order, but serving God was the overflow of a heart thankful and grateful to what Christ had done for them, a life desired to be lived by faith. How about those words? Since you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Um, mm. Then we get to that uh, as we come down the home stretch here, this uh, curious uh, verse 48, the way things are phrased. When the Gentiles heard this, in other words, the message of salvation by God's grace through faith and that you can know Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the way to the Father. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the word for appointed could also be translated enrolled. <laughs> enrolled, just like we enrolled people in vacation Bible school, right? As in the book of life spoken of throughout the Bible. So as many as had been written in the book of life, appointed, enrolled to eternal life, believed. So as John MacArthur said, this is one of Scripture's clearest statements on the sovereignty of God and salvation God chooses man for salvation. Remember Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Whenever we think about these things, we've got this, uh, we've got this two realm thing that needs to be in our mind. First of all, in the human realm, scripture conveys from cover to cover that God has actually written the Bible and given it to us so that people could hear the message of God's love and forgiveness and repent and turn to God by faith. So on the human level, we understand we are being given this message, and if we repent and believe and receive, we become a child of God, we get forgiven of sins, a secure place in heaven, and we are following the Lord now. Um, but also sprinkled throughout the scriptures are these verses that talk about God's initiative and salvation, where he's drawing, where he's wooing, um, and um, somebody asked uh, Charles Spurgeon one time to reconcile God's sovereignty and salvation with man's free will in making a choice for Christ. And they said, reconcile those for us. And he said, I don't need to reconcile them. They're like two old friends. They've never had a falling out. They're like two railroad tracks that meet at the throne of God. Um, 
And of course, there are those that say, well, I still don't understand, so I need to come down somewhere here or the other. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, perhaps the best way I've ever heard it displayed is there's a door over there, and uh, on this side of the door it says John 3.16. Um, and so I walk through the door, and on the other side it says appointed from the foundation of the world, right? So on the human level, I respond. On the divine level, there's something much bigger going on. Uh, now, I'm not among those that believe when you parse it all out that that means God chooses some for heaven and others for hell. There are those that believe it that way. I don't think that's the way the whole of the scripture is presented. I believe it presents it, a, it as a great mystery that can be of great encouragement. Now, some of you know a lot about cars and engines. I don't. I know I turn the key in the car and it starts and I can go from point A to point B, right? And I liken that to repentance and belief. Uh, I know the object of my faith, it's Christ, and I have placed my trust in Christ as I turn the engine of belief. Uh, I know it activates what makes the car go from here to there, right? As the scripture has told me to do, to believe, to receive, etc. Underneath the hood, there's things going on that I could never explain to anybody, but I'm thankful it's there, right? And so somehow the scripture describes all those verses like this as that. The way Jesus said it in John 15, 16 was, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, let me tell you practically what this has meant for me for years. Um, there are words like predestination in the Bible and election in the Bible. We've talked some about foreknowledge. What is it God foreknows? A hyper-Calvinist says God foreknows who he's going to choose and who he's going to damn for all eternity. Um, a uh, guy like me, an evangelical uh, uh, Baptist kind of guy, you know, says that uh, what God foreknows is what the sinner does with the offer of salvation, you know, and there's various other ways to look at that all along the way and whether or not you can remain in your theological buddy's uh, uh, club or not, you know. But um, I think Scripture does affirm them both, and so we should, and just appreciate the mystery uh, as it comes down. The car analogy is one of the best ones that I know to give. Um, but practically speaking for me, here's what that's done over the years. It's given me an even greater assurance of salvation. Um, because I think about how fickle I am in so many areas. And sometimes I think, do, do I really love Jesus? Do I really believe Jesus? And I don't know if it's heartburn or what, but sometimes I think, you know, I still have some of the same wicked thoughts I did, you know. And, um, you know, uh, I love that passage in Timothy that says, the solid foundation of the Lord stands, having these two seals. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everybody who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so what appreciating this mystery has done for me over the years is, is knowing that ultimately, as Hebrews says, I mentioned this past Sunday, he is the author and the finisher of my faith. I know I love Jesus, but sometimes I struggle. But I know that he chose me before I ever chose him. I affirm that because the scripture does. And it gives me that greater sense that my salvation is bigger on how much I meant it or how good I could articulate it 
it was uh, meant, it, it's, it's based on his own uh, just beautiful love. I like the way Warren Wearsby said it. You got three members of the Trinity all active in our salvation. From the Father's perspective, I was saved in eternity past when, as Ephesians 1 says, he predestined me to be his, right? Predestined to adoption as sons. He predestined me for this adoption I've now experienced. From Jesus' point of view, I was saved when he died for my sins on the cross, and he knew exactly the day would come when I would respond to the offer and be saved. From the Holy Spirit's point of view, I was saved December 16th, 1984, when he drew me to respond to the gospel preached that day and uh, came to know him, right? And as far as all three members of the Trinity is concerned, you know, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, right? Well, clear as mud? <laughs> well, in Antioch of Pisidia, they were so excited to have had made their peace with God, receive the forgiveness of sins, and be justified by faith. Verse 49 says, the message of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And um, verse 50 shows us the next inevitable thing that happens when the gospel gets moving, opposition, right? So there were these proud Jews that would not repent and turn to Jesus and they were creating trouble. They got together, verse 50 says, with some of the devout and prominent women, the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So when the gospel comes, some don't want the change, and that's been repeated throughout church history, often by people clinging to their religion. I mentioned earlier Whitfield and Wesley um, within their counties in England that you know an entire county of people were technically already in the Anglican church the way in other countries people were in the Catholic church, right? And uh, when John Wesley would go to the coal mines and preach, sometimes the Anglican bishop, the leader of the area, would say, you can't do that, that's in our parish. And Wesley would say, you're not preaching to those coal miners, they're dying and going to hell. And he said, yeah, but they're in our parish. You can't do that. It's illegal. It was. It was the law of England. It's illegal for you to preach in the parish, even though we're not trying to reach those guys. And John Wesley responded with, the world is my parish. You know, when we preach the gospel, we're preaching it to everybody, right? Uh, and we want to get that word out. So Paul and Barnabas move on, but the Holy Spirit doesn't. Look at verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, came to Iconium. Um, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, verse 52 tells us. So uh, the Holy Spirit kept working in the new church. The disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So here's the bottom line, our last thought for the night. Paul and Barnabas moving on didn't stop the new church from moving forward because it was Jesus' church and the Holy Spirit stayed in Antioch of Pisidia with the new believers after they moved on. And so, you know, uh, I... Uh, I'm so excited that uh, when the faith sticks, when it's a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit and people come to know Christ, uh, you know, that can happen in a one-day encounter, a one-week encounter, a one-month encounter, a one-year encounter, a decade encounter. Um, but uh, God's work continues on, you know. And so we share with confidence the Word everywhere we go. And uh, it is so neat sometimes uh, meeting back up with somebody that I saw many years ago and had very limited interaction with and them say, what you told me that day changed my life. And I'm like, really, what did I say? You know, <laughs> And it was just the stuff I'd say to anybody, to a non-Christian coming to know Christ or a young Christian trying to follow or a guy considering the ministry or you know, trying to keep a home together and, and those things and stuff. Being in the right place at the right time, God puts you there, he puts me there. 
And so Paul went to this town, and as many as the Lord intended to get that church going were raised up. And we're gonna see both these themes constantly come back into play the rest of the book of Acts. The, the one is that God honors courageous and bold proclamation of the gospel. And the other hand is God is always working before and after we get there to prepare the hearts, to draw people to salvation, to settle the faith into hearts, and to appoint, keep people's eternal appointments uh, for uh, the rest of their lives and out into eternity. Well, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.